Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Graymere Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at graymere.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Graymere Church of Christ. This morning's scripture reading will come from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. 1 Timothy 6, 12 through 15. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you were to walk through the Smithsonian Museum of American Art in Washington, D.C., you might not be surprised to see paintings by people like Georgia O'Keeffe. You might not be surprised to see sculptures of famous figures like Moses, contemporary art. But you might not expect to see the work of a man named James Hampton, who spent years as a custodian in the D.C. area. And in 1964, they discovered that for 14 years, he had been working on a display in his garage, which consisted of 180 different pieces. He called it the throne of the third heaven. He's thinking about what scripture records as Paul describing going to the third heaven. And the nation's Millennium General Assembly. The long title. It's there in an alcove uh, in that museum. Uh, it is... Uh, done by someone who believed passionately about it. In fact, we don't know much about his life, but we do know that he uh, believed he was receiving visions, believed this was a, a mission. Uh, he was very determined to do this. What I want to point out this morning is what he created this with. He created it entirely from materials that he found. Aluminum, gold foil, old furniture, pieces of cardboard, uh, shards of a mirror, light bulbs, just things like that. And they're all head, held together with glue and with tacks and with pins. It's not exactly what you might expect to find in a museum. And it's not exactly a, an adequate representation of what it was he was trying to capture. He's using just ordinary things. But the reason I wanted us to start there is because what we're doing this morning is we reflect on the life of Jesus and specifically reflect on the nature of Jesus. We're going to be talking about things that Scripture describes but that are beyond our own human language. We're going to be dealing with trying to describe the throne of God, what it means for Him to be King of all our days. And as we reflect on that, we're going to be using human language that's not going to be able to fully capture what we see in Revelation or what Isaiah saw in the throne room of God. But as we've been working through this series, we've looked at some words from the song, Here I Am to Worship. And we've reflected on Jesus as light of the world. who came down into darkness, opened our eyes, let us see. Last week, we reflected on beauty 
that made our hearts adore Him, the beautiful life and ministry of Jesus and the hope we have to spend that with Him. And so now we're going to be thinking about what it means for Jesus to be King of all our days. And so I went up to our VBS storage room uh, and found our throne here. I'm sorry there was only one, so I had to pick a side. So if you can't see it, I apologize. Uh, You can come up and see it afterwards. But I just wanted us to have a visual. Again, much like the words we use, any visual we have up here is not going to be able to fully represent uh, the power and the gravity of being in the throne room of God. I also found in the VBS storage room another visual aid here just to help us focus. We'll come back to this one in just a minute, but I want to set it right here. In the passage that Caleb read for us, uh, we come to the end of Paul writing to Timothy, and he's encouraging him to fight the good fight. He has to keep up what he's doing. He has to, to keep working for the Lord. But the way in which he motivates him to do that is by connecting this encouragement to fight the good fight, to keep doing what he's doing with a doxology, with what seems to maybe even be a, a common set of statements or prayer that the early Christians knew about. He's plugging in a, a powerful image of God as king as motivation for Timothy to keep living his life. And I'd like for us to look at just some elements in this passage and see where they lead us. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, when Paul's encouraging him to fight the good fight, taking hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and then notice the latter half of that verse, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's encouraging Timothy to remember his confession. Now, some have looked at that and said maybe this refers to a specific time when Timothy was being dedicated to ministry or there was some sort of an an ordination ceremony where now he's going to become a minister. But I think that the context of the passage and the context of Scripture points further back than that. It points to the time in which Timothy became a Christian, that eternal life to which he was called. When did that happen? When did he respond to the calling? It was when he made the good confession. It was when he put Christ on in baptism. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, Timothy, remember when you did that, what you said. And there were people there that were witnesses. And then notice the connection in verse 13. I think this is interesting. He said, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's not only mentioning Timothy's confession, but he's mentioning in a a similar way the confession Jesus made before Pilate. Now we're going to look more at that, but what does it mean? What message did Jesus give Pilate? And he says that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, And Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. 
Now, does this help us as we start to connect some of the things that we've looked at already? Jesus as lights of the world shining into darkness. What a gift that the one who dwells in unapproachable light that we cannot see, have never seen, came in a way that he could be seen by his creation. The beautiful life and the hope that we have, what a gift that that hope is in the one alone who possesses immortality, the one alone who is the sovereign who is king of kings. And so as we think about the confession that Paul mentions for Timothy and the confession that uh, he describes Jesus making, I want to think of the three significant confessions this morning and what they have to say about who's sitting on the throne. So we're going to have three different confessions and in reality, uh, three different thrones, or maybe we could say three aspects of the one who sits and reigns as king. The first is going to be found in Matthew 16. Because as we start reading through the Gospels, one thing we're reminded of is that Jesus is the long-awaited king. He's the one that they had been waiting for. And again, in the world we live in, uh, thinking of a crown... Uh, thinking of what it means for someone to wear a crown in our nation, in our country, is not something we're as familiar with. But in the ancient world, it mattered who had this kind of authority. And it mattered for the Jewish people that they were not able to control their own lives. They were oppressed. They were under the rule of someone else. They were awaiting a king. And so there comes a time when Jesus is talking with his apostles in Matthew 16. They're in a district of Caesarea Philippi. They're around uh, rock formations and and altars to different gods and even the location of one of uh, Herod's palaces and a place that's named for Caesar. And Jesus says, well, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are Christ, the son of the living God. We often talk about this as Peter making the good confession. The fact that he is saying Jesus is the Christ. Christ means anointed one. Israel anointed their kings. When Saul was going to be king, he was anointed by Samuel. When David was selected as king, he's anointed by Samuel. There's something special about an anointed king who's set apart for a specific purpose. And Peter looks to Jesus and says, The king that we've been waiting for, the anointed one, is you. There had been a king promised to reign over his people on the throne of David. In fact, listen to what we see told to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 12, God says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. David was promised there was going to be a descendant of his that would have a kingdom established. And when we get to the New Testament and Luke records Gabriel speaking to Mary about Jesus, Gabriel says he will be called great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Scripture makes it clear from the very beginning of Jesus coming to earth 
that as, as we think about scenes of a child at the manger in the, in the incarnation and what it means for God to be made flesh, what we're also seeing is the fulfillment of God's promise to His people. That there will be a king they had been waiting for. There will be a Messiah that they had been waiting for. This was here from the very beginning. Now we see a lot of nativity scenes this time of year. And we've talked about this before. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to, to ruin any pictures that we might have had, but if we're starting to flip through the pages of Scripture, we know that uh, we don't know exactly how many uh, were in the party of the Magi that were coming with those gifts. Uh, they wouldn't have gotten there at the same time as the shepherds. There was some time lapse in between, all of those kinds of things. But one thing that we might miss if we're not careful is when we think about the manger, we're not just thinking about an incredible, heartwarming event that makes us feel good and that gives us a good feeling this time of year. We're seeing the King who's become flesh, who has set aside the place that He had with the Father. Paul told the church at Philippi, he didn't consider it something to be grasped, to held on to. He, he set that aside... And he's able to come and be among his creation. He's the long-awaited king. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we get to the book of Acts, all of a sudden some of these passages in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus as king, all of a sudden find a new fulfillment. So for example, Psalm 110 is a psalm about a king. About a king who sits on the right hand of the Father. And one... Uh, who is the king, David, at the time in this psalm, says, the Lord says, the one on the throne says to my Lord, who could possibly have more authority than the king of Israel? Only God. But then the Lord says to my Lord, there are two different individuals he's thinking of. He's describing the father, speaking to the son, the ruler who will shatter kings and judge the nations. It's an anticipation of the messianic king. And maybe that's one reason why in the book of Acts, when the apostles are preaching Jesus, this is the psalm that is cited more than any other in the book. When they're talking about psalms, they're pointing to Psalm 110. This is the king that David acknowledged that we've been waiting for. Psalm 2 is a psalm about a king. Uh, there are other rulers who are devising plans against this king, the Lord, and his anointed. But he's described as the Son of God, a kingly designation. And it's an anticipation of the anointed Son of God, the one who was promised. And so in Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John have been preaching and they've been taken before the council and they've been reprimanded and told not to to spread that word anymore. When they come back and they're with the other Christians, they remember this psalm because this was the long-awaited king. They had been waiting for generations. God was true to His promise. He was the long-awaited king, but then as we continue reading in Scripture, we're reminded of the everlasting nature of His realm. You may have noticed that as we read some of these fulfillments of Jesus' promise, 
that yes, there would be a fulfillment that he would sit on the throne of David, but then there would often be an indication that his kingdom would have no end, that his reign would have no end. We're pointing to the fact that it's not just a physical kingdom. This was a challenge in the New Testament. Sometimes it's a challenge even for us. Uh, We would love to think about earthly power and earthly reign, uh, but when we think about the spiritual kingdom of Jesus, there are other aspects to consider. When Jesus is delivered into the hands of his enemies, uh, his enemies wanted to put him to death. They didn't have the power to do that. They needed the Roman government to approve, and so he has to stand before Pilate. And John chapter 18 records this exchange in verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew. Am I your own nation? And the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You have said correct, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's important to remember that God was true to his promises to his people. But when we think about Jesus as king, it's also vital to remember that his kingdom isn't limited in one physical sense. It's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's why he would tell Peter to put down his sword. That's why they weren't supposed to fight uh, in the way that you would fight if you were defending a physical kingdom. He had spiritual plans in mind. And he even tells Pilate later in John's gospel, when Pilate says, essentially, don't you know I have the power to control whether you live or die? He says, you would have no power except that it was given to you from on high. This whole exchange between Pilate and Jesus is fascinating to me because it's a reminder they're negotiating who truly has the power. Because the people who were very opposed to Jesus, they felt like they had the religious power, but they didn't have the legal power to put him to death. And so they take him to Pilate because they think Pilate has the legal power. Pilate even says as much. But throughout the whole time, we see Jesus is the one who's truly in control. He's the one who has power. And Pilate finds himself in a difficult situation because there's someone that no matter what Pilate does, whether it's sending him over to Herod to see what Herod has to say, maybe to uh, help his relationship with Herod, uh, whether it's trying to allow someone else to go free, maybe to release someone because it's feast time and they choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. No matter what Pilate does, he can't seem to get out of having to make a decision about this. Even when his wife tells him that because of a dream, she says, don't have anything to do with this man. Pilate tries to wash his hands. He's trying to deal with who's really in control. And Jesus reminds him, my kingdom is not of this world. We see Pilate beginning to understand Jesus' nature. And so when Paul writes to Timothy and he describes the good confession that Jesus made to Pontius Pilate, uh, I, I think in a way that good confession would consist of of all that Jesus said and did in front of Pilate. His whole life was that confession. But I do think of this conversation where Pilate says, you are a king, and Jesus says, 
I am. My kingdom is not of this world. And you may also have noticed, this was both in uh, Matthew 16 and multiple times in Scripture, another way Jesus described himself was as the Son of Man. And so when he's called before the Jewish leaders, when he's called before the high priest, and he stands before them, Luke tells us that when the high priest asked Jesus about his identity, he replied by quoting a vision from the Old Testament where Daniel sees the Son of Man who has this everlasting kingdom. It's a description Jesus would give of himself when he wants to show that he can have the authority to forgive sins. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man was a larger designation than just a physical king. This was an eternal ruler. So if we think about two different confessions... One was a confession that Jesus was fulfilling the promise that God had made so many generations earlier. And the second is an understanding that in that fulfillment, it's not just for one specific people, but for everyone, that he has an eternal kingdom. Now, as we think about this third confession this morning, as we think about what Paul is telling Timothy and the choice we have to make, there's something distinct about the the throne we're going to mention here. Because as as you look at this chair, I want you to think of the throne that we have this say in who gets to sit on this throne. We have uh, the ability, much like pilots would have only have the power that God has given him, God has given us the power to decide who's going to be on the throne of our hearts. We've sung already, King of my life, I crown thee now. And there are many of the hymns that we sing that describe what it's like for us to crown Christ as Lord. And it's not that in crowning him somehow we have our own inherent authority. Because after all, no matter what the Jewish authorities thought, they couldn't control the fact that Jesus was the Messiah who'd been promised. No matter what Pilate said, he couldn't control the fact that Jesus is the everlasting King. But God has given each of us the ability and the choice to decide who's going to be the king of our lives. We get to choose that. Now, it won't last forever. Our lives don't last forever. There'll be a time when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess Jesus is Lord. But until that time happens, as long as the Lord has given us time, we have the choice to decide who's going to be king of our lives, of our hearts, who's making our decisions. And so as we reflect on that, let's think back to the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Is Jesus our king? In verse 11, notice the way that Paul tells Timothy, there are some things that fighting the good fight, living with Jesus as your king, is going to require. You're going to have to flee from some things. You're going to have to go away from things that you shouldn't be pursuing and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And this is not going to be easy. He describes it as a fight. It's going to take effort. And so if I'm going to decide that Jesus is going to be king of my life, this is reminding me there are going to be some things that I stop doing. There are going to be some things that I start doing. And this is that eternal life to which you recalled. Timothy made... His confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is saying there are people who know. There are people who were there. Who are helping you through this process. Remember what you've said. It's 
It's one of the reasons it's such a beautiful moment when someone puts Christ on in baptism and they make the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's an incredible moment. It's very significant. It's necessary if you're going to become a child of God. But much like the decision to become a Christian itself, it doesn't end in that moment. That confession is not just something that's said. It's something that's lived out throughout the rest of your life. And so the good confession for Timothy was not just what he said when he became a Christian. It was continuing to live that out, not just in words, but in life. If I'm going to allow Christ to be the king of my life, I need to make that confession before I put Christ on in baptism. I need to be willing to say it out loud, but I also need to be willing to live it. To live out loud in a way that people look at my life and they can tell who's sitting on the throne. That it's going to take effort. That it's not just going to be easy. I can't follow the path of least resistance. I can't rely on other people to give me the cues of of how I need to go and what I need to do. I've got to look to the one who's in authority. And if I have any doubts about who that is, maybe I just need to think about my decision making. One thing you notice when we read about times of kings and of monarchs, it's the king who makes the rules. It's the king who makes the decision. In a throne room, everything is structured around the king, uh, the, the monarch, the one who is in charge. And every person's behavior is determined by the one who is sitting on the throne. So if I look at my own behavior, look at my own choices that I've been making, what do they say about who's in control? It's incredibly difficult sometimes in life to deal with situations, maybe situations that we didn't cause and that are out of our control. There's a lot that we can't control, but we can choose who's going to be in power, who's going to be king of our lives. If I'm king of my own life, I might make a lot of decisions that sound good at the time. I may make a lot of decisions to do things that feel good at the time. I may even make a lot of decisions that impress other people. But unless he is the king of my life, those decisions are not going to have the eternal benefits of being a subject to the one who has a kingdom that's not of this world. It doesn't matter what kind of positive feedback I get or what I think of myself. Unless He is in the throne of my life, unless I'm running every decision through the lens of how would He have me live, I'm not going to be able to live out this good confession. You know, there's only one throne in our lives. There's only one seat of power. There's only one who can be in charge of the decisions that we make. There's only one place for that. And all through Scripture, we see human beings wrestle with that fact. Because there are so many other things we'd like to put, if not on the throne, at least on the same level. But we're constantly reminded there's only one place. And this morning, as we try to describe a heavenly realm that is hard for our own mere words, for our own mere visual aids and props for our own museum exhibits to try to capture, we're reflecting a spiritual reality. And we need to ask ourselves, if Jesus is our King, is He the King of my days? 
We know Scripture tells us He's the King that they've been waiting for. And not only that, but He's the King with an everlasting dominion. The only choice left to make now is, am I going to let Him be King of my life? That's the power He's given me. Uh, Pilate had, would have no power except given to him by God. We wouldn't have any power except God has given us the opportunity and the responsibility to decide who's going to rule our lives. This morning, if you need to make Jesus king of your life, we see what happens in Scripture when people decide to become part of the kingdom. We see what happens. They, they turn their lives around. Uh, there are some things that they stop pursuing and there are some things they start pursuing. They confess Jesus as Lord. They put Christ on in baptism. And every day, they're live, seeking to live up to their confession. That's what all of us are doing who are trying to be Christians. We're not doing it perfectly, but we are doing it to the best of our ability. It may be that you could use prayers. After our worship time together, if you go out this doorway, there's a room where a couple of our shepherds would love to sit down and talk with you, pray with you privately. Or it may be that the prayers of this church family would benefit you. Let's leave here today determined to make sure that Jesus is king of our lives. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and as we all sing together.